Open up your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, reading verses 9 through 13. We are continuing our journey. We're marching right along through the life of Jesus, our chronological walk through his life in a sermon series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We are using all four Gospels as we journey verse by verse through the life of Jesus. Now at this point in Jesus' life, we find him sitting on a hillside preaching to his disciples, delivering a sermon which has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now it's important to remember that despite the fact that there was probably a very large crowd surrounding, gathering around Jesus there as he preached, the sermon itself was for his disciples, for kingdom citizens, for the followers of Jesus. So this sermon is about how they are to live, how are disciples, how are followers of Jesus, how are kingdom citizens to live. Now so far in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus show that that his disciples are to have traits about them that we call, that are written, in, that in the Sermon on the Mount are called the Beatitudes. These are the traits of kingdom citizens. Then we saw Jesus show us how kingdom citizens are supposed to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. And then we saw how Jesus taught his followers that, that we are to be, um, we are to have, I should say, a righteousness, a living, a right living that exceeds that of the most religious people of Jesus' day. And he shows us that we are to do this in light of the fact that he himself has fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. And so as his followers, as those who have placed our faith and our hope in him alone, as our law keeper, we are then to be keepers of the law, but in a radically deeper way than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, who kept just a a surface understanding of the law. So long as they did this and did that, they felt like they were okay. But Jesus calls us to have hearts that are different, hearts that obey the law. And that can only come from a heart that's been made new, that's been supernaturally given a desire to obey God and supernaturally be given a, 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 an ability to obey God's word, supernaturally empowered to obey God's word. Now, in light of this new righteousness that Jesus calls his disciples to, he says this in verse 48 of chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, we know that no Christ follower can be totally perfect, totally holy in this lifetime. But Jesus calls us on a trek toward holiness. He calls us toward a progressive holiness, to be progressively sanctified. Progressively becoming like him and thereby looking like our Father in heaven. It's all about the image of God being restored in kingdom citizens. We were created to image God, therefore to glorify him. And Because of the fall, that image has been distorted in all men. And the process of becoming holy, being sanctified, is the process of that image being restored. And that's what we're called to. But with that radical call toward holiness, as we've discussed several times, with that radical call towards holiness, there's a very danger, very great danger of hypocrisy. Jesus warns us at the beginning of chapter 6, Beware of practicing our righteousness before others other people, in order to be seen by them, for then we will have no reward from our Father who is in heaven. And Jesus subsequently warns us about hypocrisy in three areas. Giving, praying, and fasting. Giving in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. um, Praying in verses 4 through 5. And then fasting in verses 16 through 18. 
Now, on the subject of prayer, Jesus decides to give us a little bit of extra instruction. In in verses 7 through 15, he gives us an addendum or, or, or an extrapolation of what he's already said about prayer. And he tells us not to be like the pagans who heap up babbling prayers to sort of impress God and, and manipulate God into giving us what we want. That's foolishness. Jesus says, and he reminds us that the Father knows what we need before we can even ask him. So, so after saying this, Jesus then gives us what the proper pattern for prayer is. And that's what we call the Lord's Prayer. Really, it's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It's our prayer. But Jesus gives us this prayer in verses 9 through 13. Now, it's very important before we read this to remember that this prayer is a model to be followed and not a mantra to be repeated. A lot of people have taken the Lord's Prayer and done exactly what Jesus was getting on to the Pharisees and the pagans for doing. Using it as some sort of magic mantra to try to get God to do what they want him to do. Which is foolishness. It's funny how we all have a tendency to, we all are pulled back to Phariseeism, aren't we? All the time. We have to guard against it. Now, the structure of the prayer is simple. It has an introduction that shows us how to approach God. And then after that introduction, there's six petitions or six prayer requests. So we looked at the first two petitions over the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to look at the third. But we're going to read the whole prayer. So please stand now as we read the Lord's Prayer, which is Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. The word of the Lord says the following. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help now. I I desperately ask for your help. What a fearful thing it is to stand up here and and tell people what Jesus means when he says something. That is frightening. And so, Lord, I wouldn't dare, dare think of doing this without your help. So, Father, grant me grace to speak your words accurately. And what a tremendous responsibility is to sit here and hear the words of Jesus. And to receive them. And to to be discerning. And to be a Berean. And to examine everything I say today. To make sure it's accurate with the word. And so what a responsibility upon the congregation this morning. I pray, Father, that you would give all of us ears to hear. Don't let us take these next 40 to 50 minutes lightly. But help us to feel the weight of what happens when the word is preached. Grant me the grace to administer it properly, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this may be a dangerous question to ask, but how many kids out there like video games? All right? Kids. I saw a couple of adult hands go. I'm just talking about the kids right now. This isn't confession time, adults, all right? Kids, all right. Some of you guys like video games out there. Now, you know video games in and of themselves are are morally neutral. Well, most of them, I should say. Some of them are not. But um, the the video game console, if you will, isn't necessarily anything particularly evil. But certainly video games can become bad and can be certainly abused by people. Now, when I think about video games, 
they fascinate me, really. I, I used to love playing video games. I don't have time, really, to play video games anymore, but I used to love playing video games when I was a kid. And um, I particularly like sports games, and I particularly liked playing games where I could set up my own league, and then I would compete in that league, and then I would beat everybody, right? And so, like, I could set up a World Cup league and play, be the United States, and the United States would actually win. It was like, wow, because that's not how the real world operated. And I think that's the thing about video games, right? What, what attracts us to video games is that we can go into an, a virtual world and we can operate that world the way we want it to work. We can make the United States a soccer power. Or, or as the kids like to play today, which is, it's, it, I, I, this game still makes no sense to me. What's the game with the bad graphics? The, um, where you build the blocks, Noah, come on. Minecraft. All right. Minecraft. The game makes no sense to me. It looks like it was made in the early 80s. And, and I'm like, some dude's making a lot of money off doing really bad graphics. But anyway, they play Minecraft. And these kids get in this world where they can build and craft whatever they like. Matter of fact, some versions of Minecraft, or some settings, I guess, you can actually fly. Am I right? Okay, you can fly and see the whole world. And you know what? You can operate that world the way you want it to work. You can virtually be who? You can be God. You can rule the world. And, and when you're in a video game and you've got a big screen in front of you and you're, you're separated from the real world, everything goes the way you want it to go. And so you, I think you can see pretty quickly how video games can become, they're not in and of themselves bad, but can become sinful when they become an escape for us from the real world and they become a means for us to exercise our will. I'm tired of this world with its suffering and things not going my way and there always being financial challenges. I'm going to go into this world where I can fly and have everything I want to have and build whatever I want to build and kill whoever I want to kill and rule the universe. And our Eve nature comes out, doesn't it? God knows you'll be like him if you just eat this. The reason I bring that up this morning is simply to say, we're coming to this next petition. And this next petition is all about resting in God being the sovereign king of the universe and him doing his will as he sees fit. When we pray your will be done, we'll get into that. We'll talk about what it means for God's will to be done. But I want us to be thinking this morning, maybe it's not video games, maybe it's something else. There's a thousand different ways we could try to escape from the real world and are unwilling to submit to God. So this morning, I want us to really ask the Lord to, to take this third petition and penetrate our hearts and to expose any sinful tendency to want to rule the universe that we might have. And all of us have it to a degree or another, whether you're playing Minecraft or not. This third petition we're looking at today, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is essentially a plea for God's purposes to be accomplished instead of ours. God's purposes to be accomplished. Now, before we get into that third petition, I want to remind you of the first two. First, we looked at how to approach God in prayer, our Father in heaven. Okay, and I'll go ahead and bring these reminders up on the screen in case some of you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks. 
When we talk about our Father in heaven, we are to approach God confidently because of his intimacy with us. He is our Father. The word, the, the Aramaic word there is Abba, Papa. He is our Father. And we are to approach him confidently because of his intimacy with us. But we are also to approach him reverently because of his transcendency over us. He is our Papa. He is our Father. But he is our Father in heaven, meaning he is transcendent and sovereign. Now, approaching God in this manner sets us up for proper praying. For it should generate great humility in us and awe in us as we meditate upon the awesome truth that God is our Father, and yet He's also sovereign over the universe. Amazement should take over, and therefore this first request that that comes after this approach to God, the first request coming off our lips should be a request for him to be magnified because that that, that approach should drive us to that. It should drive us to a desire for, for God to be made known. And so that's what we see in the Lord's Prayer. The first request is, hallowed be your name. It's a request that God's person be magnified. It's a petition that that, that should cause us to contemplate who God is, his character, his nature, his person. And to hallow means to make holy or, or to sanctify. And in this case, it means to properly recognize God's person as holy and desire that the fame of his name be spread. When we pray, hallowed be your name, our desire is the fame of God's name will spread to the ends of the earth. So, hallowed be your name should, should drive us directly into the next prayer request. And the next prayer request is, your kingdom come. We, we look at the sin and this, this, this sinful and the sick world and, and we should desire for people to come to God, to come under God's holy and just rule, to come under his program. So we pray your kingdom come. And when we do that, we're praying at least three things. We're praying for a greater rule of King Jesus in our lives. Your kingdom come here. We're praying for a greater recognition of King Jesus in our world. Your kingdom come there. And we're praying for the, for the great return of King Jesus in all his power. Come, Lord Jesus. Come back and establish the fully consummated kingdom here on the earth. So that's the first two requests. Now I'm going to remind you of all six requests again, okay? So here's all six requests. I'll read them and then I'll tell you about what each one is, what it lines up with in the, in the, the Lord's Prayer. Number one, we pray for God's person to be magnified. Hallowed be your name. We pray for God's program to be fulfilled, your kingdom come. We pray for God's purposes to be accomplished, that's today. God's purposes to be accomplished, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next week, we'll pray for God's provision to be imparted. Give us this day our daily bread. The next one will be, we pray for God's pardon to be granted. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And finally, we pray for God's protection to be afforded. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And thus we see when we look at the Lord's Prayer, and I pointed this out every week, we see that it's a radically God-centered prayer. Jesus is reorienting our prayer life. He's recentering our prayer life on the Father. Jesus wants us to pray God's agenda as opposed to our agenda. Most of the time we come to the Lord in prayer with our agenda. And that's okay so long as our agenda lines up with his agenda. And that means we are praying according to his agenda. Will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will. Now, if there's anything that many people are confused about in the church today, it's God's will. God's will. The lack of understanding in many sectors of the church regarding the nature of God's will 
is frustrating, but the lack of discernment in the church regarding how to seek or to find God's will is shocking. Before we get into this petition uh, and what it means to pray your will, your will be done, let us consider two things. I want to look at the nature of God's will and how to find or seek God's will. So we need to talk about God's will, just like we did last week when we talked about the kingdom. Surely we should know these two things before we begin to pray, your will be done. We need to know the nature of God's will and how do we find or seek God's will. We want to know what we're praying before we pray it. We need, just like last week, we need to know what the kingdom was before we prayed the kingdom. We need to be speaking the same language Jesus is speaking, in other words. I don't know if you remember, there was a funny, I think I showed it once at Harbin's. There was a funny commercial, it's probably on YouTube somewhere, where this, this, this German Coast Guard is being trained on how to do Coast Guard stuff. And, and they're training, and you know, his, his trainer pats him on the back and sits him down the seat so the kid's ready to go. This young kid. And so he's sitting there, he's all nervous. And all of a sudden, across the intercom comes this, 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 this British-sounding voice. Remember, the kid is a German Coast Guard. And this British-sounding voice comes across and says, you know, um, you know, mayday, mayday, we're sinking, we're sinking. And he's going, he's fumbling around trying to figure out how to talk back to them. And, and then he comes across again, mayday, mayday, we're, we're sinking, we're sinking. And he goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, this is the German Coast Guard. Uh, what are you thinking about? All right. He was speaking a different language, if you will. We need to understand what we're thinking about in the Lord's Prayer when we're thinking about your will be done. Let's make sure we're on the same page. So first, the nature of God's will. Now, God's will is a deep and complex subject to contemplate, much deeper than than it may seem on the surface. When we read of God's will in Scripture, it's important for us to understand that there there are at least two different aspects to God's will spoken of in Scripture. Now, these are not separated. It's not that God has two different wills. God's not schizophrenic. But there are two distinct aspects of the will of God that we see unfolding in Scripture. First of all, there is the secret will of God. The secret will of God. This is also sometimes called God's will of decree or God's sovereign will or God's efficacious will. This is God's immovable, predetermined, inflexible, providential plan and purpose for all things. For all things. This is the aspect of God's will that cannot be thwarted or changed in any sort of way. It's impregnable. It's unalterable. Isaiah 46, verse 9 says this, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it, and I will do it. This is God's secret will. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is God's secret will for all things. Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God's sovereign, secret will over all things, good and bad, from the foundation of the world. This is God's secret will. So that's the first aspect of God's will. Now, the secondly, the scriptures speak of God's revealed will. So we have God's secret will, 
And we have God's revealed will. This is sometimes called God's will of command, God's will of desire, or God's preceptive will. Okay, this is God's communicated desire for all mankind. It consists of what he commands. It's communicated clearly to mankind through his word. The revelation, this revealed will of God, okay, he's, he's revealed it in the Bible. He's revealed it in his law. And unlike the secret will of God, it can be broken in the sense that people can resist it. God's secret will can't be resisted. God's revealed will often is resisted. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, For this is the will of God. So there's that word, that phrase, will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Okay, so the will of God is that we control our bodies in holiness and honor. Yet how many of you in here, it would be all of you, have at some point in your life not controlled your body with holiness and honor? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God that you pray without ceasing, that you do all these things, you rejoice always. How many of you in here have broken that? I think all of us have to raise our hand. We have all, at some point in our life, resisted this very thing that Jesus tells us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, we have resisted the will of God. So from just these two verses alone, we see that we have broken God's will. So when we consider the overall scheme of things, it's accurate to say that God's will both can and can't be broken. His sovereign secret will can never be broken. But his revealed will, his law, often is broken. But the glorious thing is that God, in magnificent sovereignty, works the breaking of his revealed will into the perfect purposes of his secret will. Isn't that awesome? God works the breaking of his revealed will into the purposes of his secret will. That's our God. It's stunning. And it's so clearly taught in scripture. And it's so neglected in the church. It is so clear in Scripture. I had to cut out so much Scripture that I wanted to put into this sermon today. I left it on the cutting room floor. Or you'd have been here for two hours. It is so packed into the Word of God. Let me just give you two examples of what I just said a minute ago. Of the revealed will of God clearly being violated and broken. And the secret will of God marching on unstoppable. Here's one. Genesis 50 verse 20. Begin in verse 18. You know this, right? Who am I talking about when I go to Genesis 50? I'm talking about Joseph. Genesis 50, verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Did you hear that? Am I in the place of God? Video game players? Am I in the place of God? As for you, verse 20, one of the most key verses in all the scriptures. As for you, you meant evil against me, 
But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's revealed will broken when Joseph's brothers sinned and violated God's law, tried to kill him at first, and then decided, you know what, let's don't kill our little brother. That's a little too cruel. Let's just sell him into slavery. But God's secret will, unbroken, as God purposed and even designed their sin for his good. When it says here that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that word meant it, it does not mean that God somehow figured out how to work it out for good. It means that he designed it. The brothers had a design. Here comes Joseph. They had a plan. Here comes Joseph. Let's take him. Let's take his coat. Let's rip it up. Let's put blood on it. Let's throw him in a pit, but let's don't kill him. Let's sell him to to slave traders. That was their plan and all the details. And it worked out for them, didn't it? Well, sort of. But God meant it. He planned it. Every portion of it for his purposes. That many might be kept alive. That the nation of Israel might survive. Let me give you another example. And an even more shocking one. Acts 4, verse 27. This is the the early church praying after the apostles have been persecuted. It says this, For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. They're praying to the Father. In this city, they were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God's revealed will was broken when Herod and Pilate and Gentiles and Jews committed the greatest crime in history, the murder of the Son of God. That was a violation of God's very clearly revealed will. But God's secret will went forth unbroken as God predestined it to take place as he had already shown us in the Old Testament. All they had to do was know Isaiah 53.10 to know that God could purpose even the death of his own son. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord for Jesus to be murdered. Wow. Listen to that. It was the will of the Lord that the revealed will of the Lord be broken so that the secret will of the Lord could go on and be accomplished. That's the God we serve. That's the God we pray to and we say, your will be done. It's awesome and it's stunning if we just sit and think about these things. And friends, it's not that, and I want to remind you of this. I know I said this kind of a minute ago. It's not that God is some cosmic Mr. Fix-It who works out our messes for good. Like we spilled something and he can say, well, I guess I can turn that into something good. No, God, without sinning providentially in his absolute sovereignty, secretly purposes all things for his glory and for the good of his children, including the free, willful violation by sinful men of his clearly revealed word that is all over the scriptures. And for those who learn to embrace it, they find it is a worship-generating and peace-giving truth. It is a worship-generating truth to think about these things. It really is. So that's the nature of God's will. Real quickly this morning, we could, we could preach a whole series and keep going on that. But I got to keep going. So, so that's what the Bible says about the nature of God's will. But, but what about finding God's will or seeking God's will for our life? You hear it all the time. 
I'm just trying to find God's will for my life. The problem is, friends, that many Christians are trying desperately to find out what they were never meant to find out. Namely, they are trying to find out God's secret will. They want to know how everything is going to work out. And at the same time, many Christians are ignoring the will of God that they can know, the revealed word of God in these 66 books. So we walk around saying, oh God, show me your will, hoping we can pry open heaven, and the book sits here neglected on the shelf. That's happening in churches across America. God has given you his will in 66 books. It's amazing. Yet you sit here and we play play horoscope hermeneutics and hope we can somehow figure out God's secret will. Don't be so stupid and foolish, church. God has given us his will. It's right here. It's not our job to know the secrets of God. We just read this. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. Listen to this. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. We have it written right there how we're supposed to discern God's will. Stop practicing extra biblical horoscope Christianity where you try to conjure up the secret things of God. Too many people are trying to pry open the door of God's secret will by looking for signs, searching for feelings, listening for voices, hoping for dreams. And even when the Bible is used, it isn't used to discern how we are to live by the revealed word of God. Instead, it's used like a Ouija board. Oh, Lord, what do you want me to do? Should I take this job? All right, in the 11th year, the third month, the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Well, that doesn't help me, God. All right, um, should I take this job? And we play the Bible like it's a Ouija board. And guess what? You are practicing the same sort of divination. You might as well just get out a Ouija board. You are using the Bible as a means of divination. And you are spitting on it in the process. That is not how the Bible is to be used. Friends, we are to live by God's Very clear, revealed word. The secret things of God, okay, we need to stop trying to be like God, stop trying to figure those things out. So put down the fruit, Eve. Put down the fruit. Stop sinning against your king. Submit to his sovereign rule. His kingdom come. His will be done. So how do we seek God's will? We seek it by studying the scriptures and living by them. Period. That's it. We seek God's will by studying the scriptures and living by them. That is God's will. Simple. So a young man comes and frets and he says, should I marry this woman? Well, friends, God has told you not to marry an unbeliever. So if she's a believer and you want to marry her, marry her. Simply follow what God has said. And then so long as you're not violating God's revealed will and you're using the common grace of common sense... Do what you want, so long as you're not violating what's right here. Or another person frets, should I take this job or should I take that job? And they're looking for some sort of sign for God to show them. What has God revealed? What has he told you? He's told you that you're supposed to do everything to his glory, and he's told you to work heartily as unto the Lord. So using the common grace of common sense, you look at your job opportunities, 
You determine if any of them violate God's revealed will. You determine which one of those two you can most glorify God in. And you take the job you want. It's really that simple. That's how we discern God's will. So then what is Jesus telling us to do here when we are praying, your will be done? We're praying for at least two things. And here comes your notes. Number one, we are praying that we and others may actively obey what our Father commands. That's the revealed will. That we and others may actively obey what our Father commands. This prayer that Jesus gives us is a lot like that of King David's that we read at the beginning of the service. Psalm 143 verse 10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. How does God's spirit lead? Through the Spirit's words. And what are the Spirit's words? There's only one book that's been breathed out by God. It's this book right here. The Apostle Peter teaches us that the Scriptures were not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the breathed out word. It is the means by which the Spirit leads us. So we are to be praying. And when we pray, your will be done. We, are, we, are, we and others are to be obedient to God's revealed will. We are praying actively, meaning we are praying with this book open. That God might show us how to be who he wants us to be. We want others to know and obey and be transformed by this book. We want others and us to know and obey and be transformed by this book. Psalm 119, 105. One of those that everyone has memorized. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So your will be done is a prayer that his word be known and obeyed in our lives. To know and obey God's word is to do the will of God. And this doing the will of God demonstrates that we do indeed have a new and supernatural affection or love for both God and man. We love God because we've been born again. We have a new heart that's generating new affections. We have new tastes And so we want to do this will of God. We want to do the Bible. We want to do his word. You know, Barbara, little Barbara in our home, see, there's lots of things she she likes to eat. She'll eat just about anything. There's some things she shouldn't like to eat and actually eats them. But then there's things that she should eat but doesn't want to eat. And one of those is broccoli. I put a picture on Facebook a few months ago of a massive broccoli battle we had. And she's got this look on her face and she's got her, her fists up against her chin just staring at me like, I'm not budging. Because broccoli is not her thing. So even to this day, we have to fight to get the broccoli into Barbara. Now, if tomorrow, or let's say this afternoon, Heather were to bring out a bunch of broccoli and serve it, and Barbara were to start eating it and just go to town on it and love it, mm, just start, what, what would most parents say? They would say something along the lines of, who is this? <laughs> Who's this child that's sitting here now? Because I don't reckon that's not Barbara. And, and that's what it's like when we become a Christian. You see, this was broccoli. This was broccoli to us. Ugh. And we heard it, and it was revolting to us. We couldn't stand it. We didn't want people reading it. We didn't want people teaching it to us. And then all of a sudden, something changed. And it wasn't that we changed ourselves and all of a sudden said, you know what, I think I like this book now. It's that our heart was changed, and our affections were changed, and our taste buds, our spiritual taste buds were changed. And all of a sudden, this book became like a, I don't know, a 10-ounce, 2-inch thick steak. All right? Oh, my. It's wonderful to us. And we love it. And that's what happens to people that have been born again. A truly born again man or woman will love to do God's will because they love this book. 
Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Listen to that one again. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You see again the tying of the will of God with the law? It's it's all throughout the scriptures. Instead of rebelling against God as we formerly did, we now love the Father, we love the Son, we love the Holy Spirit, and we love our fellow man. 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. A person that's been born again keeps the will of God because he keeps the commandments. To know and obey the word of God is to do the will of God. And and this doing not only demonstrates that we have a new love or new affections for both God and man, it also demonstrates that we are part of a new family. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Friends, this may come as a shock, but not all who claim to be Christians are Christians. And one of the ways that God's revealed will, his word, distinguishes between real and fake Christians is whether or not the person does the revealed word of God. Whether or not he wants to keep this book. Meaning he walks in step with this book. Doing the will of God demonstrates that we are indeed God's children and that we are indeed in his family Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So the mark of a believer is someone who wants to do God's will. And if they want to do God's will, they'll go to the revealed will and seek to live by it. So genuine Christians, because we have new affections and we're part of a new family, should increasingly be hearing and be reading and be studying and be memorizing and be meditating upon and be applying the scriptures, the infallible, inerrant word of God, because by it, our minds and our wills and our hearts are transformed to be obedient to God's will. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So your will be done means that we believe and we practice the doctrine, friends, of the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me say that again. To pray, your will be done, if you really mean it, your will be done means that we believe this book is sufficient and we live that way. See, a lot of people say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and then go out and live their life trying to find answers in a thousand other areas. But if you really are praying, your will be done, then we're saying, okay, I believe this is your will, your revealed will. I want to live by it, and it is sufficient for everything I need in life. So your will be done means that 
we are asking that we and others may actively obey what our Father commands. But secondly, we are praying that we and others may patiently submit to what our Father decrees. That's where the secret will of God comes in. That we may patiently submit to what our Father decrees. This means that we are asking that God create in us and in others a willingness to accept whatever he purposes for our lives, for our families, for our fortunes, for our church, for our nation, for our world. This means submitting to the sweet and pleasant things that he purposes and to the bitter and difficult things that he purposes as well. Job said at the beginning of his trials in Job chapter 1 verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what that song we sang earlier is based on, that passage of Scripture. And then later in chapter 2, Job says this, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? It's almost as if the whole book of Job, friends, was written to help us submit to the secret will of God. Let me say that again. It's almost like the whole book of Job was written so that So we can learn to submit to the secret will of God. If you read Job closely, God never explains everything to Job. Do you realize that? We're we're kind of, we're we're behind the scenes. We can see what all is going on with Satan coming and requesting to, to, to afflict Job with all these trials. But God never reveals that to Job. It was a secret. You know what, friends? God doesn't have, doesn't owe you an explanation either. Many of us go through life thinking God owes us an explanation. God, why are you allowing this? It's okay to cry out to God. But friends, he doesn't owe you an answer. He doesn't owe it to you. Lamentations 3 verse 37 says, Who has spoken it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Friends, it is not, sin, it's not sinning to attribute God's sovereignty over evil things. Matter of fact, when Job said this earlier, when he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The very next line says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He just said, God sent him evil. And it was not sinful for him to say that. Friends, we got to understand our God can purpose, allow, plan, design, however you want to word it, evil in our lives and still be sinless because he's God. We must learn from King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebi says in verse 34, Daniel 4, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This means that when we make plans, we are to make them. But we are not to put our hope and our plans above God's plans. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This means that when we make plans, we do so with humility, knowing that our plan, our plans must submit to his. So guys, as you make plans for your life, I'm going to take this job, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or our family's going to go on this vacation. Friends, 
we should have a great humility upon us as we make plans. Because we know God can shut down that vacation. God can shut down that job. God can bring calamity into your life. Or God can send up a new opportunity. It's better than the other one. Here's what James says. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. To pray your will be done, friends, is to pray with the type of disposition about life that James speaks of here in James 4. It is evil to live in such a way that we act like God isn't sovereign. To do so is to put ourselves on God's throne, and that is indeed evil. We are not fatalists like the Muslim, but we understand that there is nothing outside of God's control and that he works the willful actions of free agents into his infallible plan. What makes this so sweet, friends, is that anything he purposes, he does for the good of his children. That's why the prayer starts with our Father in heaven. It's so important. This, among other things, sets us apart from the Muslim as well, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Our Father loves us so much that he is even working in secret within us through the indwelling Spirit who intercedes for us according to the Father's will. That's an amazing truth and provides us with such peace. God is working secretly not only outside of us, God is working secretly inside of each one of us. Don't believe me? Well, let's go to Romans 8. I'm, I'm drawing this sermon to a conclusion here. I'm getting some glossy eyes out there. Hang with me. Five more minutes. Come on. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thy will be done includes all of that. Your will be done includes that bomb right there. As I'd say to the little kids, booyah. I know, now my older kids are going, oh my goodness, did he just say booyah from the pulpit? Friends, he is our father and we can trust his sovereign hand. Every event in this life, even our worst trials and tribulations are for our good. They are gifts to make us who he wants us to be. I use the illustration a lot when I talk about God's sovereignty. When I take my children, my small children who can't really communicate, all they can do is scream and cry. When, when I would take my small children into the doctor because they were sick and, and they didn't feel good, they were going through this horrible time and all they wanted was my comfort and my care, I would take them into the doctor and I'd hand them over to this doctor and he would pull out a needle and shove it into their arm. What a horrible father, right? Well, that's what the little child thought. But I knew they needed that needle. I knew they needed that momentary pain, that momentary affliction, because what was being administered through that momentary affliction was for their good. And no, they couldn't understand it. A little crying baby couldn't understand. No matter how much I said, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. No matter how much I hugged them, they were mad at me after that shot. And friends, if the distance between an infant's brain and our brain is that much, imagine how much farther is the distance between our brain and our Heavenly Father's. And he purposes all things for our good. All things. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now let me conclude with this. I've only really focused on your will be done. But it says here, on earth as it is in heaven. Real quickly. I want to point out a very subtle difference between this mention of heaven here in verse 10. And the mention earlier in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, our Father in heaven. Now, it doesn't really show up in our English translations. I'm not sure why, but actually that heaven is a plural. Heavens. Our Father in the heavens. Now, the Jew understood, and, and, and the Bible uh, seems to teach this, that there are really three levels, or if you will, um, places that are called heaven. The Jew would have called the sky heaven, where the birds are. The Jew would have called the, the stars heaven. Beyond the birds and up there where the, the celestial bodies are. But then there was the third heaven. And the third heaven was where the Father resides with his angels. It was unseen to the human eye. It still is unseen to the human eye. This is what Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 12 when he said that he had been taken up to the third heaven. Matter of fact, he says that he heard things that he cannot be told, that he cannot even utter. Friends, if you believe in the sufficiency of this book and God's revealed will, that alone, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, tells you that when a six-year-old boy tells you what heaven is like, it's bull. Because Paul couldn't speak about it. So why pick up that book? Why? You have what you need here. God's revealed will. If Paul cannot utter these things I'm sure a six-year-old boy can't. Please, church, be discerning and practice the sufficiency of Scripture. So in verse 9, there's a plural mention of heaven. 
And we are talking about God's transcendence, his sovereignty as our father in heaven over all the heavens, over the sky, over the space, over the outer heavenly realms. He transcends time and space, in other words. But here in verse 10, the word is singular. Here Jesus is speaking of one realm only. The realm outside of earth and space. So here we, when we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, singular. We are expressing our desire for life here in time and space on earth to approximate life as it is in heaven. That's what we desire when we pray your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And, and really this applies to all the first three petitions. We want God's name to be hallowed like it is among the angels. We want God's name to come, we want to come under God's rule like the angels are under God's rule. We want to submit and obey God's word and God's will like the angels submit to God's word and God's will. On earth as it is in heaven and one day when we are with him it'll be so. So come Lord Jesus come. And finally friends when we pray your will be done. Let me conclude with this. When we pray your will be done, we must know we can't pray it perfectly or obey it perfectly. We are only progressively being sanctified. So this request, like all the others, drives us to the one who has already prayed and obeyed it perfectly on our behalf. Does this section of the Lord's Prayer remind you of anything? It should. It should drive you to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because there in Matthew chapter 26, we read this. We read it. He said, Jesus does this three times. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. And so for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, my friends, is more than a good example. He is our representative. In Gethsemane, the disciples slept while Jesus prayed. The disciples slept as Jesus watched. Jesus watches, Jesus prays, Jesus is the only person 100% committed to the petition, your will be done. The first Adam disobeyed in the garden of paradise and we along with him. But the second Adam obeyed in the garden of agony and he did so on our behalf. Jesus did it on behalf of all who are his children. He has perfectly obeyed the will of God for us. So that it's his righteousness that's credited to us. We don't, go to, we don't show up at the gates of heaven and God say, okay, I see you prayed my will be done. And you, you prayed it about 60% of the time and you obeyed it about 54% of the time. Okay, you're just a little bit over the edge, you can come in. We know our righteous deeds are filthy rags before the Father. He, we, go to, we show up at the gates of heaven and he says, is my son's righteousness upon you? If so, you're in. If not, if you're relying on your own goodness... Well, friends, there's nothing for you but eternal punishment. So are you his child? If you'll repent of your sins this morning, friends, confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Put all your hope in him. Put all your faith in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. You will be saved. You will be adopted as a child of God. But until then, you're like the person playing video games, trying to be the king of your own universe. And one day, friend, the plug will be pulled and you'll see that there's only one sovereign king of the universe. And oh, friend, I pray that you'd see that now before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a father who loves us so deeply and so intensely that we can't even put it into words I tried to express it this morning. It's so insufficient 
My words are so insufficient. So I thank you for your words, which are totally sufficient. Oh, Lord, help us to go to this book daily and to see your love for us, to see, your, see that we are your children, to see the promises you have for us, the promises you've kept for us through Jesus. Help us to be people of the word. And, Lord, help us to fight against this temptation, to go around trying to, to figure out some secret will of yours that belongs only to you. Forgive us for taking the, the, the crowbar of our own our own sinfulness and trying to pry open what only belongs to you. Make us people of the word. And Lord, if there be anyone here that's not a believer this morning, they've been living by their own will. I pray, Father, that you convict them of their sin. Help them see where their will will lead them. And help them to bow the knee this morning. Enable them, by your grace, to bow the knee, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And Lord, we look forward to that day when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So come, Lord Jesus, come. We ask in your name. Amen.